Welcome to the podcast that shares the views of high-level leaders in the European and global financial services industry. Welcome to Shaping Finance, a podcast which offers a platform to high-level decision-makers and shapers in international finance. My name is Nicolas Maquel. I'm the CEO of Luxembourg for Finance and the host of this podcast. It is my great privilege to welcome for our second edition of this podcast my counterpart from London, Miles Selich. Miles is the CEO of The City UK, the industry-led body representing UK-based financial and related professional services. Miles has been in this position since September 2016, and in those four years, he certainly has seen more than his fair share of different crises, starting, of course, with the aftermath of the Brexit referendum and stretching today, obviously, into completely new territory with the COVID crisis. How the city has reacted to these crises and to the economic situation um, deriving from the COVID crisis are among the issues that we are looking forward to discussing with Miles today. Miles, how has the COVID crisis impacted London's financial industry and where do you see the role for the financial sector in the economic recovery? Uh, well, Nicola, first of all, thank you very much for asking me to participate in this series of podcasts. Uh, I think the relationship between uh, our industries in the UK and Luxembourg is a, a long-standing and very important one. Uh, and I suspect that the challenges that we've had to face through uh, COVID-19, both in the UK uh, and uh, in Luxembourg, are very similar. Uh, the, uh, the British industry uh, has had a sort of short-term uh, challenge uh, in terms of adapting to uh, the COVID-19 situation. And then there are longer term challenges as well. So in terms of the short term, I think the, the industry has adapted well to the lockdown. Uh, we move very quickly to having a very large number of people, the vast majority of the industry, uh, working from home. Um, and uh, that has uh, meant that we've been able to look after uh, staff safety. It's meant we've been able to look after the safety of customers, uh, but we continue to be able to provide services. So if anything, the evidence here is that the productivity uh, in the industry has uh, increased. Um, so far, the technology uh, has been able to, uh, to keep up with the demand uh, that both customers and employees have had. Um, I think there are some interesting questions uh, uh, over the long term. I'll come to that uh, in a second. But then from a very practical economic perspective, there's been the challenge of providing economic support uh, into, uh, into businesses. Uh, and uh, so far, the industry has facilitated dozens of billions of pounds worth of loans, uh, over 50 billion so far, uh, into British businesses to support them through the crisis. It's worked extremely closely with the central bank, with regulators, with government uh, in delivering that. Um, it's kept the economy uh, supported uh, through this uh, through this process. Uh, and in fact, some institutions are lent more in a single day during the crisis than they would normally do in a month. I think that then raises some questions over what the long term here is. So uh, in terms of the amount of money that's been lent, clearly that raises questions uh, over the creation of unsustainable debt. Uh, and that's something that our industry has been working with uh, government and the central bank on. So we've had a group led by 
Sir Adrian Montague, who chairs our Leadership Council, and Omar Ali of EY, uh, who is one of our board members, uh, looking at how you recapitalize businesses, what, how can you utilize the private sector to recapitalize millions uh, of uh, small and medium-sized enterprises uh, and to keep them uh, going uh, through the recovery, uh, and therefore providing a foundation, a springboard uh, for that recovery. Um, but also, I think there are question marks, uh, as I was alluding to earlier, about what this means in terms of some of the trends that we've seen, remote working, uh, use of uh, uh, technology uh, and the acceleration that we've seen in those trends that, that COVID has created. It's been as many uh, uh, pandemics historically have been or major points of disruption. They act as accelerators of pre-existing trends. Um, and that's something that the industry is, is grappling with at the moment. One of the trends that this crisis has clearly underlined the importance of is that of sustainable finance. Now, obviously, a financial center like London, just as much as uh, Luxembourg, Paris or many other financial centers have not only discovered this uh, important trend with the current situation, but have been busy and involved in it for uh, quite a while. Nevertheless, we see not only an acceleration of this trend, but also the trend has really been underlined in its importance. Miles, what is the City and you at City UK doing to really push this agenda forward? So I think you're you're absolutely right, Nicola, in identifying this as a really critical uh, uh, element in the the future of the industry and the future of society, but also in expectations that society has of business generally, uh, our industry in particular, but also the the nature of what our industry does. It is in so many cases part of the solution to social and economic and public policy challenges. And I think the sustainable finance dimension is is just one example of that, but a critically important one. And we've seen uh, on ESG SRI standards more and more of an expectation uh, from the industry to play uh, to play its role. Um, we've issued reports working particularly with Imperial College London uh, on uh, the way that our industry just last year, on the way that our industry um, is part of the solution on the development of low carbon infrastructure. I mean, you cannot have a low carbon economy uh, without low carbon uh, infrastructure underpinning it. Um, and you can't have low carbon infrastructure created as easily uh, without having the appropriate financing in place. And that's something that our industry uh, is, is central to. And um, London has been a, and the UK more broadly, uh, has been one of the trailblazers in this space. I was especially pleased in the, uh, the most recent Yen survey uh, in this, that London was identified as the leading centre for the quality uh, of its green finance offering. Um, and it's something that we've been, as I say, alive to for some time. So uh, UK Treasury, HM Treasury, uh, uh, set up working with the City of London Corporation, which looks after the physical square mile, and something that we and others uh, were very supportive of, uh, the Green Finance Institute, um, which is uh, which is there to convene and lead uh, coalitions of, of experts, not just from the UK, but, but globally, uh, to identify where the barriers are uh, that, that uh, would allow you to, that if you can unlock them, would allow you to have 
you know, impactful outcomes for the rest of the economy. And that is something that, that benefits the environment, benefits consumers, benefits the citizen uh, and benefits businesses. So I entirely agree with you. This is absolutely critical. And um, whilst uh, COVID has obviously been a, a dreadful tragedy, uh, as I said earlier, um, what it has created is this accelerator effect. Uh, we need to look at what we can do in order to to seize the um, uh, the potential changes uh, that COVID has created that we can then utilise to the to the benefit of the economy as we build back better and to the benefit of society as we build back better. I'd also add that obviously uh, from the point of view of COP26, uh, which was due to be held in Glasgow this year and is clearly still being taken forward under the auspices of the UK's uh, business secretary, Alok Sharma, that's an enormous opportunity for the industry. It is something we're very alive to, to look at how we can support that, that broader agenda. Uh, and I think it's important that people realise, as I say, uh, that there is no meaningful or sustainable solution uh, to uh, the environmental challenge uh, that we're facing um, without the utilisation uh, of uh, the financial and professional services industry. Another trend that this crisis has underlined is that of deglobalization, which obviously started a couple of years ago, but has really been accelerated by this current crisis. How do you see this in the City of London? What does it mean for the financial industry? And what do you think can be done in order to counter this particular trend I mean, I think you're you're absolutely right to raise this, Nicola. The UK industry, the Luxembourg uh, industry, the financial and professional services industry globally is an international industry. It is an industry that brings people together, that provides finance across borders, um, and uh, is is one of the underpinnings uh, of the enormous benefits that globalisation has brought um, across the world uh, over the last few decades. I think it's important to look at um, this in the round. Uh, so this isn't something that has necessarily kicked in uh, just in recent years. Um, in fact, uh, I think I'm right in saying that if you go back to 2005, that's when you see uh, the, the beginnings of a decline in global trade. And obviously a large part, not all, but a large part of what our industry does is supporting and financing global trade. So these are these are longer term trends, but they are nonetheless very worrying longer term trends. Uh, so um, in particular, when you think of our industry uh, and when you think of banking, for instance, uh, a lot of the standards uh, that are set are set at international level. Uh, and it's, uh, in my view, entirely regressive. Uh, to uh, move towards a, a period of uh, regulatory fragmentation, financial market fragmentation, you know, isolationism, protectionism, um, and the, the risk. I was talking earlier about some of the things that, that the, the changes that COVID has accelerated that may allow us to do things better. One of the risks uh, on the other side of the coin um, is uh, the acceleration of trends uh, that are unwelcome. So uh, 70 countries um, have so far uh, implemented tariffs or export controls or import controls of some form uh, on goods, particularly those related to pharmaceuticals or medical supplies. But historically, what that tends to be is the thin end of the wedge. You see those sorts of controls and restrictions issued in one uh, part of the economy, and they tend to spread to others. The other element of this is that the, the, the gap, the difference between 
trade in services and trade in goods uh, is is much more blurred than it used to be. And occasionally you'll hear people saying uh, in uh, in politics in some part of the world that it makes sense from their perspective to limit imports uh, in in goods, but um, actually their sense is that you can separate that. Uh, from trade and services. And that's just not the case anymore. Uh, 40% of all goods exports have some form of service contract attached to them. Um, and that is only increasing. If you think of, uh, of iPhones, of jet engines, of computer technology, you know, in many ways, they, the, in, in many cases, those products, the, the services element, the contract that comes with them, the apps that can be downloaded to them, uh, are often a source of greater value than the, the product itself. So I think this is a really worrying area. I think it's incredibly important that um, industries that are outward facing, such as the British industry and the Luxembourg industry, um, continue to make the case for open markets, for international markets, for the highest standards at international level, and the avoidance of global fragmentation in markets and in regulation. Because ultimately, um, if we do go down that route, um, it will increase costs, it will decrease growth, it will have an impact on job creation, uh, and the, the ultimate losers will be citizens, uh, citizens themselves. Building on this issue of deglobalization, um, let us switch to Brexit, because you have taken up your position in September 2016 following the referendum, in which one of the main arguments was for Britain to be able to arrange its own affairs on a global scale. Now, doesn't deglobalization also impact the way that Britain can play this role of global Britain going forward? What, the, what has Brexit meant for the city um, and where do you see the future of it? I think that's absolutely a fair question. What I would say, and certainly, you know, I, I'm not here as a spokesperson for Brexit or the Leave campaign, but certainly my understanding uh, of where the uh, where that campaign was coming from was not for an isolationist Britain, or certainly not in terms of most of those involved, but a more globally outward-facing Britain. Um, from the point of view of our industry, however, which is what my remit is, you know, we've always made the case. Um, uh, that um, there is a single European ecosystem when it comes to financial and related professional services, one that includes not just the EU, uh, and the, but also the UK, Switzerland, uh, other centres. You know, this is a closely integrated, um, highly efficient uh, industry. Uh, from the point of view of the British industry, and again, Nicola, this is something that you and I have, have both had direct experience of, you know, the British industry uh, and the British government, when it came to financial services regulation, uh, was always able to punch above its weight uh, in Brussels. You know, when you look at the, the shape of financial services regulation uh, that emanated within the European Union, the UK, entirely understandably because of the size of the industry here, uh, was always one of the most influential voices in that. Um, and I think it's, it's notable uh, but when you look at the uh, the approach the UK government has taken on uh, regulation, uh, there has been no radical departure. Uh, nor do I anticipate a radical departure in standards um, from the European norm, because we helped set the European norm. Now, it may well be that over time, uh, there is a, a gentle divergence in particular uh, areas where there may be a uh, particular uh, British exceptionalism um, because of the nature of the way the industry operates, that subsector of the industry might operate. I'm thinking here 
particularly, for instance, of Solvency 2 uh, and the fact that there is a, a, a much more uh, much greater reliance on annuities for pensioners uh, in the UK than there are in most other parts of Europe. So uh, there may be sense to do something specific in that area. But there is no uh, particular uh, desire in the industry that we that we speak for, no particular desire in government from the conversations that we've had for some sort of, of regulatory um, uh, bonfire. Uh, you know, quite the contrary. There is absolutely a recognition uh, that you're successful internationally by having the highest standards. Uh, and I think that can be seen by the fact that if you consider, you know, the old economic argument of revealed preference, actually the moves out of London um, have so far been relatively minor. Um, the, the hope is uh, that once we get through the politics of the current negotiations um, and some of the emotion that obviously comes around these times, uh, that we can continue to build a, a close uh, uh, and deep relationship in financial and indeed professional services between the UK and the EU. Luxembourg would certainly hope to be able to build such a relationship for the future with London, and we have said so on many occasions. London has, over the last couple of years, managed to um, build itself into not only Europe's, but the world's fintech capital. My question is, how has both Brexit and the COVID crisis impacted this success story? Given the investment figures, one would have the impression that the impact is relatively little, or is it maybe just too early to say? So the role of fintech in the UK is absolutely one of the key underpinnings for the long-term success of the industry. Uh, the UK is already uh, a leading, as you say, Nicola, the UK is already a leading global hub for fintech. Uh, what we've seen in fintech, as we've seen in other uh, tech uh, parts of the tech industry, is COVID-19 again acting as an accelerator uh, of uh, adoption uh, of some of this technology. Um, and uh, I'd anticipate that that will that will continue. Uh, you know, we've been very fortunate in the UK through the the FCA sandbox uh, and other ways that the UK regulators have uh, operated that the UK regulators have uh, taken a very encouraging approach uh, to, to innovation, uh, to uh, looking at how they can um, uh, support the development of skills uh, in this space, which is absolutely vital, uh, and to working uh, very closely with the industry on that. I think what's, what's also really fascinating is the way that fintechs and established players um, are partnering up. Uh, to a to a greater and a greater extent, we uh, we did a report for the UK government on this uh, about eighteen months ago, and you're seeing uh, the the fintechs bringing their technological expertise, their innovation, their creativity, and matching that uh, with what's happening in the uh, the work that established players are doing. Uh, but also, what the established players have is the advantage of um, pre-existing relationship of trust with their customers. Uh, and so both sides are looking at how they can collaborate more closely on that. And I think that will just become closer and closer uh, over time. Um, I think one of the interesting things is that occasionally you'd hear criticism that fintech had never had to uh, experience a, a recession. You know, fintech has particularly emerged post-financial crisis. Um, and, you know, that was a criticism of, you know, how resilient will the fintech firms be uh, when we do hit economic hard times? Uh, and as I said earlier on, I think what we're actually seeing is that they are coming into their own uh, uh, in these times. Uh, and I expect that will merely continue. I think one of the big challenges uh, as we go forward 
um, is the contest for talent. And this is not just a, a challenge for the UK industry, it's a challenge for the industry across Europe and indeed globally, um, which is how can you persuade talent to join fintechs when they might want to join some of the big tech firms or they might want to join uh, tech startups in other parts of the economy. Uh, and I think that is something that means we're going to need to look at a lot of the issues that I was alluding to uh, earlier uh, in terms of working practices, uh, how we encourage and attract people, uh, what we do on diversity, uh, equality and inclusion issues in the industry. Um, so I think, uh, again, very exciting, huge amounts of opportunities, uh, but a number of challenges that we're really going to, to have to grapple with. Well, obviously, notwithstanding all the technological evolution that we have seen over the last couple of years, financial services are and will remain mostly a people's business. Miles, let me ask you a last question on this 10th anniversary of the City UK's founding. What are the greatest achievements that you're most proud of and where do you see uh, the future in the next five years? Well, well, Nicola, thank you for the birthday wishes, uh, which are much appreciated. Um, so what are we? What am I most proud of? I think three things in particular. Firstly, I think we have succeeded in the mission that we were set uh, when we were established a decade ago to represent the ecosystem, the whole ecosystem across the UK of financial and related professional services. And I think we've done that. And the feedback that we tend to get uh, through uh, member surveys and engagement with stakeholders, uh, I think, underpins that we have achieved that. Um, secondly, uh, I think we uh, helped drive the industry, coordinate the industry response to the entirely uh, unexpected, when we were set up 10 years ago, unexpected development of Brexit. Uh, and so that has been an opportunity for us to bring that 10% of UK GDP together to engage both with the UK government and with the European authorities. Um, thirdly, the work that we've done around COVID. Um, you know, we've brought together uh, more than 200 experts across the industry to drive our recapitalisation work. We've engaged at the highest levels of government, uh, central banks uh, and elsewhere on that. Uh, and that is work in progress. So I think it's a, uh, I think if I had to summarise, I'd say a lot done uh, and a lot still to do. Uh, and that will be the challenge over the next five years as we adapt to the changes that we're seeing. Well, looking at it from the outside, we can certainly confirm that the work you are doing at City UK is impressive. I myself love reading the different reports that you publish, and uh, my team uh, enjoys very much working with your team, and we certainly uh, are looking forward to doing so for the next couple of years. So from our side, wholeheartedly, congratulations on the achievements of the last 10 years. Maybe before we conclude, let me ask you a more personal question. Namely, um, over the summer, you have certainly had time to do a little bit of reading. What was uh, one of the books you have read and what are the thoughts you might want to share with uh, our audience uh, in this regard? Uh, sure. Well, thank you for the kind words about City UK, Nicola, and we very much uh, mutually appreciate the, the work that we've done together. It's uh, the relationship with Luxembourg for Finance is one of our most important. In terms of, of books that I've read over the summer, um, uh, as you say, it's been an opportunity to catch up with a, a very large pile of books uh, and a very large backlog. Um, the last book I read was George Magnus's book, Red Flags, on the Chinese economy. 
the history of the Chinese economy and the opportunities and the challenges that it faces uh, in the years ahead. Uh, and I was particularly struck uh, by George Magnus's thinking on the uh, demographic impact uh, of what happened in China, and I think you know one of the one of the facts that I think people are uh, often lose sight of is that the largest mass migration in human history uh, has taken place in the last 25 years. Uh, we've seen nearly 300 million people move from the Chinese rural interior into the cities. Um, and that has had a, a huge impact uh, on the shape of the Chinese economy and will have a huge impact when you think about aging challenges uh, in the Chinese economy uh, and what that also means in terms of uh, uh, the development of services uh, and the role of financial services in, in supporting an aging population. Uh, it was a very thought-provoking, fascinating book and one that I'd absolutely recommend. Well, thank you very much, Miles. This was a fascinating discussion. We covered a lot of ground. I'm sure that uh, given the uncertainties that remain both uh, on Brexit and on the developments in the COVID crisis, we will certainly have another opportunity to discuss these in the coming month between us. Thank you also to our listeners who have tuned in again to this uh, second edition of our podcast. In our next episode... We will be discussing um, economy and finance in Asia with Fred Newman, the chief economist for HSBC in Hong Kong. To stay up to date with our podcast, please feel free to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or Google. You can also find more information on our website, luxembourgforfinance.com.